I want to invite you now, if you will, would you join me in Matthew chapter 18. I want to pick up where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 16, talking about biblical church membership. So if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have access to a Bible, maybe by a smartphone or tablet or something, we want to put one in your hands. And if you would just hold your hand up and kind of keep it there for just a moment, one of our ushers will come and hand you a Bible. Um, This we want to make our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. Um, In fact, if you know someone else who doesn't own a Bible, make this our gift to them. You can't steal them. This is this is something we, we tangibly participate in, in in such a way that we don't simply sit back and just like passively let someone pretend to be the expert on the Bible, but instead we believe that the Bible shapes us. It actually is what creates us into, into the church. It's, it's the word, it's, it's the truth that we find there, that, that this timeless and ancient truth that actually gives us life. It actually gives us a sense of identity. And so I want you to participate in that the best you can. And we will be in Matthew chapter 18. Don't be afraid of of the table of contents. So I want to begin in Matthew chapter 18. I want to begin reading in verse 15, but I want to chart a course for where we'll go in our time here together today. Last week we began what I hope will be a three-part series on what we would call biblical church membership. What the Bible seems to tell us about what belonging to the church actually looks like. And so I want to make a case for you. I want to start from scratch, assuming that maybe you're skeptical about this, assuming maybe that, uh, that, that you're, you're already kind of against this. I, I'm, I'm happy for that. I'm glad you're here with your skepticism. I, I want to start there. That's a great place for us to start. Or maybe for the rest of you that maybe, maybe belonging to a church doesn't scare you at all, but you're probably, if, if I were to guess, you probably bring a lot of baggage, a lot of unbiblical ideas about what biblical membership really is. And, and so I want to start from scratch on both of them. Starting with what we saw last week is that Jesus invented the church. The church was started by Jesus. The New Testament is all about the church. Jesus is going to build his church. We saw last week that Jesus is going to start this, and and apparently the gates of hell will prevail over everything that we see and know except for one thing, and that's the church. So we take this extremely seriously. And we see Jesus picking up where he left off, telling us about the authority that he gives to the church. And now he gives us a picture of the function of belonging to the church. And I want to begin there in verse 15, how the church functions, how Jesus invented it, and the vision that Jesus casts for it. Beginning in verse 15, Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. For truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, There am I among them. We believe that something amazing happens that when the Holy Spirit indwells the reading and explaining 
of this text. It becomes more than just ink on a page. It becomes words from God, our Creator Himself. So I want to begin here with Jesus' last mention of the church. A mention of the church, mind you, a prophetic mention about the church that at this point didn't really exist. And I want to argue for you where two or three are gathered in my name, there will be a misinterpretation of Matthew chapter 18. Okay? This is, this is widely kind of pulled out of context and, and used to justify all sorts of things. So I want, to, I want to dig into it and see what Jesus means to teach these people and then to teach us about the nature of the church, about who the church is and what it is called to be. And so I want to revisit the definition we've been working from that we started this last week with, this picture that the church exists on at least two different planes, invisibly and universally, and visibly, that is, locally. So we saw last week the church is made up of born-again disciples of Jesus that are united with Christ and with other followers of Jesus universally. That is, all Christ followers globally, anytime, anyplace, everywhere. And then locally, that is, all Christ followers that are incorporated to a particular local congregation. And I want to make a case for you that this is biblical. I want to make a case that, that to trust this is, is, is the only way we can respond with biblical obedience. That, that it's impossible to read the New Testament outside of the context of the church and land on anything accurate. In fact, it's a church-centered document. Jesus builds the church. Jesus, as we see here in Matthew chapter 18, gives us the ground rules for the functioning of the church, for inclusion and exclusion in the life of the church. Jesus is the one who has imperium. That is, Jesus has power, authority, and sovereignty over his kingdom. And this kingdom that is on its way through the power of Jesus is made visible now as an embassy that we would call the church. That this isn't heaven. Agreed? This, this isn't the kingdom of God. Right? This is a broken, fallen world, a, a place that is marred by sin. But the church, we come to find out, is, is like an embassy of a foreign kingdom. It's, it's a representative. It is a, let's call it an ambassador that you and I are called to be, or an emissaries to represent a kingdom that's on its way. And in this little group of people that Jesus calls the church, Jesus has sovereign rule. And everything he says goes. Everything is about Jesus. Everything points toward Jesus. The way we would talk about this, like Jesus is our senior pastor, right? There's only, there's only one guy who gets everything he wants in the life of our church. And it's not me, it's Jesus. And what he says goes. And so we, we come to this as Jesus last week cast a vision for the church that will last forever and ever, gives us a sense of this this picture of the gospel made visible in the earth. When people look at the church, they see the gospel. It's serious, and I think there are at least three parameters. I want to dig into maybe the second one this week. Last week we saw that, that ultimately the, the church is the visible outworking of the gospel. So the three ways we may be, be able to look at this, and you'll see this in a lot of ways that we, we try, to, try to boil things down to their way that you can remember it. We, we kind of boil things into three different categories, and we'll talk about it even more in depth next week. But the gospel, the community, and the mission. We, we, we want to focus on these things. The gospel dictates the community. The gospel dictates the mission. So maybe the better way to think about this is, is the church is oriented rightly upwardly, that is with God, inwardly, that is 
as the scripture would call, with one another, quite literally, and then outwardly, that is, with the world. And this second installment, I hope, will serve as kind of someplace we can come back and revisit what we see here is a picture of how the church, because of the gospel, relates to itself, to one another. The places throughout the New Testament where where we see this command or expectation that's going to be fulfilled in the phrase, one another, is made visible here. So here we go. We're oriented first and foremost rightly with God by the gospel such that the most dominant themes that we see in the scripture that are used to illustrate the life of the church, you'll remember this, Uh, we'll see if I even remember this, Um, we're a body, not just just like members of a club, but members of a body, like body parts, to to get this picture of like unity and, and necessity. You can't function normally without missing or if, if you're missing parts and then then there's a bride the church is referred to as the bride that is that is the bride that jesus laid down his life to redeem and restore to himself so there's a sense of like costliness like this is a big deal god emptied the wealth of heaven in his son to purchase this for himself and then we see the picture of family such that now we relate to one another imperfectly obviously but but like a family there's a sense in which like it exists on levels now you see the universality of this don't you like if i said hey how's your family doing there's a sense in which there's multiple levels of understanding right well do you mean like my cousins and second cousins and second cousins depending on where you are in the world once removed or however you work that out, or aunt, or aunt, or however you want to fight that out, right? Like, like how's your family? And there's a sense in which you could, like, you mean, you mean like my extended family? You mean like in the broadest sense, how's my family? Or do you mean like in the most local and most precise sense, like my immediate family, the people that I live with, or the people that I'm most closely related to? And you see this. This is, this is the same picture that we now have in Christ of the universal and local church. We, we belong to this. We're, we're family, right? We, you fight with your enemy different than you fight with your brother. Would you agree? You're supposed to fight with your enemy different than you fight with your brother, okay? That's, that's for some of you that need to hear that. You're, it's your brother, not your enemy, okay? Right? We, we, fight with, we fight with people across national, international borders differently than we fight with people across state borders. Agreed? Right? This is good for you. Like, I know, like, Iowa, Wisconsin, they're, they're weird, but they're not the enemy. Agreed? Right? Agreed. We love them. We love them, right? But, but like, but like we would deal with them differently if they kind of pick up arms against us as opposed to like say, I don't know, like if some, some state that, that wanted some international boundary that's been crossed and someone wanted to attack our border. We, all of a sudden, those state borders would look silly, right? You'd be like, why am I fighting with Iowa? We need to go fight the, I mean, fill in the blank with whatever last crazy movie you saw and some country was demonized, okay? So this is the picture of family. The fourth one is the picture of household that the churches refer to as a household, that there's like an, an orderliness. There's a sense in which God the Father runs this thing and has, has authority over it, and, and it has the marks of his household. And then lastly, the temple, that is the presence of God. And I, I want to show you in, in this particular place, this is something that's, that's truthful, I think. If we're going to think about the church in terms of a family, a bride, these all sorts of things, then how you join it, per se, how you come to be a part of it is different than how you come to be a part of any other thing that you are a member of in your entire life. This has nothing in common, almost, with, with any other sort of membership you have. After all, how do you join a family? How do you join uh, how, how do you become a bride? You get this? There, there are different levels of involvement than, say, the way you joined Costco, Sam's, or, I don't know, Netflix, right? And we see this, that Christians don't simply just join the church, they actually submit to the church. 
they see it as authoritative. It's, 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 a, it's a means of covenant that's, that's played out between them. And so what I want to point out to you today as we dig through Matthew chapter 18, just these few verses, is this. The church is a people, not a place. The church is a people, not a place. There are some obstacles in our own hearts, and our own culture, digging through this, but I want to just start there. The church is a people, not a place. Jesus starts, he says, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Let me give you at least six different principles, I think, that can, that can begin to outline what the church is, and if it's a group of people, what it starts to look like, how this people begins to interact. When a brother, could be sister, sins against you or has something, does something that harms you, that's sin against God and sin against you, it says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Rule number one, Jesus kind of gives a sense of interaction here. That word alone. That is that you and I, different than any other people in the world, do not gossip. Now, now this isn't just a rule that's meant to, you know, just be held, or it's not just a line we're supposed to observe in some sort of obligatory nature, but instead, the point of not gossiping is, isn't just to refrain from doing something, but instead, it, the point is to win your brother. Did you catch that? The, the point of this is ultimately to win your brother. Seems to imply then if you don't do this, you what? Lose your brother or sister. So if someone sins against you, you go and tell them that person's fault between you and him alone. And here's a rule for you. This, this is always the goal, is to win someone back. It's always a goal to win someone, because this, the second thing we see here, the purpose of not going elsewhere with this is to win them back. So in that first one, here's, here's two, I'm going to give you two exceptions, okay? There are two times when you are allowed to talk behind someone's back, all right? Remember this, it's two different times, okay? One, you are planning some sort of a surprise party or like surprise gift for that person, okay? That is okay. That, that is, it is okay to keep that secret from your brother or sister, like, hey, don't tell them, but I'm, I'm going you know, and, and there's like some awesome gift at the end of it. Because in the end, you're, you're keeping back from them, but the ultimate goal is to move toward them, okay? That's your first rule, all right? So if someone comes to you and is like, hey, I need to tell you about Jonathan, or I need to tell you about someone else, your first question should be, are we throwing this person a party? No? Okay. Proceed to rule number two. The second time when you can talk to someone behind another person's back is if you are seeking counsel to either minister or bless or honor that person. Again, the motive is moving toward that person. So someone comes to you and they're like, hey, I need to tell you something about Jonathan. There needs to be this sense in which, like, are you going to tell him? Are you going to point this out to him as well. If, if I come to you and I say, hey, I need to talk about this person, the, the first question needs to be, first of all, are, are we going to throw this person a party? No. Okay, second of all, are we going to minister to this person? Is this, is this conversation going to immediately lead to us leading toward this person, loving this person, caring for this person? Because any other type of conversation that you might have behind someone else's back is inherently going to move you away from that person. Right? If, if I want to tell you about a person, something bad, something malicious, not in order that we will love and care and pray for and minister and then confront that person, then ultimately what I've done by, by, kind of, by kind of putting that wall between me and that other person is turning away from them and turning towards you. And in that moment, I'm not trying to love and care for and bless or throw a party for that person. In that moment, I'm trying to make myself look good. Either, either by my own sense of control or comfort or power or approval, I'm just coming to you because I want you to think, I mean, if you'll just join me in thinking that person is bad, then we will, for this moment, think that we are really good. 
So those are your two times. If you're going to go behind someone's back, it better be to throw them a surprise party, okay? Or it better be to plan, maybe, maybe through gaining counsel, how you're going to love and care for, confront, minister, and honor that person. But ultimately, whatever you say behind that person's back has to be immediately followed up by something you say to their face. Why? What's at stake? The second thing, apparently, is that this is how we win, gain, it says. Your translation may say, win back our brother and sister. So what's the goal? What's the overarching principle? The overarching principle is to win our brother and sister back, to win them to ourselves, to win them, as we saw Paul tell us in the life of the church, to to be certain ways around certain people, ultimately to win them to Christ. Not that they would like you, approve of you, or think much of you, but they would think much of Jesus. That's the goal. Third thing we see here is that we take seriously speaking negatively of someone. So, so phase one, round one, is you go privately, you go to that person. Phase two then is that if that person does not hear you, does not listen to you, now, now, now we take very seriously what happens next. If you go to someone else, it ought to be to establish evidence with two or three witnesses. It ought to be to establish evidence, again, not to destroy your brother, but to win the brother or sister back. The motive is always to win them and reconcile with them. Again, we are reconciled to God through Christ, and now we have been, the Bible tells us, given that same ministry of reconciliation. We're ambassadors for Christ. So what we give is peace and it's conciliatory. It's not divisive. We take this very seriously. If you go around and say something badly about someone you're stepping into territory that is extremely dangerous. And it'll destroy that person, it'll destroy you. Because let me just, for some of you, that maybe, maybe this is a burden for you, okay? You have a hard time not just telling people about other people. If you come to me and you tell me something awful about another person, guess what you just told me that you were going to do as soon as I turn my back? And a gossip thinks they are winning people's trust, right? There's this sense of, oh, we're in the trust bubble here, we're in the trust tree, right? Like, hey, did you see so-and-so? They're awful. And, and they, in that moment, they feel a, a sense of like union. Oh, yeah, we're the same because we both dislike that person. But they don't realize that what they just did is they didn't just alienate themselves from that person. They just proved themselves to be utterly untrustworthy to anyone they're talking to. And so their ultimate goal to kind of gain approval actually falls in on itself. And so we take this seriously. This is destructive. We take seriously when we say something, not flippantly. In fact, there ought to be the first first couple of responses is that someone says, hey, I want to tell you something awful about this person. A couple of responses. First one is this, have you told the Lord, right? Have you taken this to Jesus? Second thing, have you taken it to this person? And if the answer to that isn't, that then, then the next question is like, all right, then, then what evidence do we need to have so that we can lovingly confront and graciously win our brother or sister back to ourselves? Next thing we see that we notice, this is a big one for us, who the final authority is. So round one, privately go to this person. I, I could just state from experience, 99.9% of all conflict would end right there if people followed this. Like if the minute you got mad at someone, you just honestly and graciously said, hey, I'm mad at you. What you did hurt. Not to accuse them, not to, not to lash back at them or demean them, but to say, hey, what you did hurt me. What you did was against me. 99.9% of all conflict, if it started there and ended there, it, we'd be in a great spot. But it doesn't, it typically goes elsewhere. But if that person doesn't, and this is what they typically, I've, 
just push on you. Most time, if you come to me or someone else and you go, hey, you hurt me, you know what those persons usually say, especially since we're talking about people who love Jesus, they usually do this funny thing. They go, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Right? Blow your mind. But if that person, for some reason, is, is hesitant, then we check ourselves, make sure it wasn't our demeanor or our own sin that hindered that kind of reconciliation, and then we go to someone else and we establish a sense of evidence. But then the third round is we tell it to our church. We, we tell it. So, so now we're stepping into something that's important for us to think, okay? So I want to make a biblical case that to be in a committed relationship with the local church it's not just something that we've invented. It's not just something that somewhere, you know, like, hey, yeah, yeah, we're going to control these people by putting, them on, by putting them somewhere on a piece of paper. I want to show you that you can't be obedient to the Bible without taking a covenanted, kind of a serious, committed relationship with the life of the church to your own heart and let it begin to stir you. That you cannot be obedient to the Bible without this. Because it says, take it to the church. Okay. Like the church universal? You mean like all Christians everywhere? Do you mean like I should find some sort of like international medium so I can broadcast what so-and-so did against me? Well, no. But instead, we take it to the church. It must be then, in this case, talking about the local church. How do you know who is the church and who is not? I'm really glad you asked. I'm really glad you asked because I want to unpack that for the rest of our time together. Because we don't just join the church, but we submit to it. We think it's the final authority. And it seems as though if that person still doesn't repent, still doesn't confess their sin and ask for forgiveness, and that reconciliation doesn't take place, the gospel isn't made manifest in that relationship, then evidently, it says here, if he refuses to listen even to them, even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. That is, an outsider. The language of inside and outside is built into the DNA of the church. And you'll say, well, Jonathan, that's really harsh. The church can kick people out? Who do they think they are? Who gave them the right to kick people in and out of the local church? I'm really glad you asked as well. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. For two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, then it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And now we get the context of the phrase that typically is ripped out of context. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now most people use that phrase to justify all sorts of awful things, right? There's two, three people gathered in my name that it must be the church. And I would argue that's not true, that this is this is only within the context of a loving and reconciling relationship of people in the called-out community that is the church. The people who are identifying with Jesus Christ, and they're identifying with one another. You can't just use this to, to justify sin, okay? This gets abused all the time, right? We're just going to go get wasted with, with some friends, but, but we're doing it in the name of Jesus, and, and so therefore, he must be present. No, that's not. You, you, where two or three are gathered, this is abused, and you need to be rebuked. This is, this is not an excuse to call anything the church. This is a powerfully high standard for what is and is not the church. Jesus, we see last week, gives the church a sense of authority, a picture that what they declare to be true on earth is also what is true 
in an eternal sense. Now, this is powerful for us because I can state with, with confidence, I, I can bind and loose something eternally when I say these words. Friend, if you are in Christ, let me assure you your sins are forgiven. If you will turn from your sins, repent of them, confess that Jesus is a saving and redeeming Lord, I have good news that isn't just something that will bounce off of the back of the wall. It is something that will reverberate for eternity. I speak with the authority of Jesus when I say that when you confess your sins, He is faithful. He is just. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And friend, that won't expire today. In fact, that will expire Never. And I get, to t- I get to tell that to you with authority. And I get to bind that. And I, I, and I get to say that you are in Christ. You are a new creation. Nothing will change that. You can't do anything to mess it up. You didn't save yourself, so you can't mess it up. And then I get to set you loose from some things. Namely, you are now dead to sin. And while you once were dead in your trespasses, now you are alive in Christ. And that is not something that has an expiration date on it, friend. That one will last eternity. And I have the words of Jesus to back me up. Who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus. Because after all, he's the one who gives the church the authority to do anything. We don't do anything unless Jesus ultimately does this. So there's this, there's this big and drastic kind of span of relationships here that ends in what we would call, you've heard maybe historically called excommunication, or for a person who's under church discipline. That is, this person submits to the authority of the church, and then the church has the ability to then remember, have authoritative, an authoritative declaration about the nature and character of this person. This is a big deal for us. Now, we won't hold this perfectly. Just like anything that Jesus sets out and entrusts to imperfect people, this won't be perfect, and I know this may have been abused. But it sets a standard for something, doesn't it? It it seems to imply that if someone were to confront you, and then if they brought a couple people to confront you, and and then they actually exposed your sin to a group of people, it seems to imply that that would bother you, that you would care. And I think we start seeing how this runs counter to the culture in which we exist. We would actually care, and I would say to you this, if you don't care that a church could put you under discipline and expel you, then you are likely not a Christian. At least not a biblical one, not a faithful one, not an obedient one. Now don't worry, here's the fun part. Did you catch this? It says start treating, if a person is cast out, right? It says treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. No, 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 hold on. There's a whole set of rules for how we treat outsiders, right? We declare the gospel to them. We win them over. We win the right to be heard, and we share that there is redemption and there is grace in Jesus Christ. So you don't just kick them out and never see them again, but then we relate to them differently, right? We relate to one another who are in Christ together than, than we relate to the people outside of the church. Namely, we are the people on mission to those people outside, So you don't just expel them from your consciousness, but you just simply delineate between you are in Christ and not in Christ. Now don't get me wrong, Jesus calls us to pray for those who persecute us, to to pray for and love our enemies. So, So you don't stop loving, you don't stop caring, you just care differently. And there's this delineation between those of us who are in Christ and in this body together, in this family together, and those who are not. So this doesn't mean you expel them from existence. You just expel them from what we would call being in Christ. 
and then we start over from scratch, don't we? we? We start by saying, hey, Jesus loves you. Christ forgives you. By the grace of Jesus, you can be made right before God. So, so we don't just kick them out of existence, but we do say that evidently there is no fruit by which we can say that they are in Christ. If they don't care what other Christians say, then they aren't living a biblical Christianity anyway, and so there's a teaching moment that has to take place. And we only do this, remind, be reminded, under the authority of Jesus. We only expect what Jesus would expect. Nothing less and nothing more. And as such, when we start to operate this way, in a way that's deeply countercultural, a great resource, a missionary to India that we'll talk about this next week, Leslie Newbigin says it this way, that, that in fact the local congregation is actually the interpretation or hermeneutic of the gospel. The interpretation of the gospel to Sioux Falls is the local church. And if you want to know what the gospel looks like, you look at little miniature kingdoms and the interpretation of the gospel in the local church. By this you shall know that, by the, they shall know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Right? There's this picture in which the outside world sees it. There's a missional component to it that we'll see this next week. But for now, at least for us today, we see that there is an inclusion factor, an inside and outside. I, I want to convince you that it matters. I want to convince you that paying attention is actually important. And I want to show you that our culture actually puts against this. So after this, Jesus sends them out, right? So he, 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 he ascends to heaven, and then the book of Acts tells us about something that happens, right? In, the, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. That is, the company of persons was in all about 120. This is Acts chapter 1. This is right before the Spirit expands the church. So what, here's what I want you to see. From the very beginning, they're counting heads and keeping records. Since they take seriously Jesus' command about the church that will last forever and who is inside and outside and how they relate to one another, they keep very, very meticulous records. They start counting. It keeps going, all right? Acts chapter 2, right? The, 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 the Holy Spirit scatters the church transforms people's lives and it says so those who received his word were baptized this is the symbolic entrance of being from death to life in christ and now into this covenant community and there were added about three thousand souls there they are again counting heads and keeping records they knew who they were and they knew who they were not now notice this wasn't numbers for the sake of numbers you've seen this like it's like diversity for the sake of diversity it's just ultimately kind of a pompous and prideful thing or, or numbers for the sake of numbers. That, that isn't the case here. The, the goal is the glory of Christ, not numbers. But one, in way, one way in which we see this played out is how we measure it. So Acts chapter 8 says it this way, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So now we have this picture of, of, of a group of people who know how many are in and out, and then ultimately... Something happens to them. A great persecution was against the church. Well, who? who? Who was in the church and who was out of the church? How did they know? They must have kept a pretty clear set of records. Now, stop right here, and this is where I want to step aside to kind of explain now how we want to approach this and proceed. So what we want to see here is a picture of church membership that we have to build and deduce from Scripture. That is, a sin, there's a sense in which we, if we don't do this, we can't be obedient to Scripture. We can't have an in and out unless we are actually in and commit ourselves to be in, and we're in covenant with one another. 
Now, this, is, this happens elsewhere, right? We believe in something called the Trinity. That is that God exists in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not because the word Trinity is in the Bible, right? You can Google Bible Trinity, you won't find it. But instead, we believe in the Trinity because that's the only way we can explain and understand what the God does reveal about the nature of God, right? So remember Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptized, and the Trinity shows up. The Father speaks out of heaven. This is a crazy day, right? There's, there's Jesus. The Father speaks out of heaven and says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Oh, snap, now we got more than, wait, God's, God's not just Jesus, God's the Father. And then, apparently, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove the people saw. And now we've got this picture of the way in which God is working to redeem his people as a creator and father, but as the son and redeemer and as the sustainer and provider, his spirit. And so the word Trinity isn't there, but we, we do necessarily, we see a sense in which God exists this way. The same is true of the membership of the local church. We have freedom on how this ought to look, but what we don't have is freedom to ignore it. Because how on earth would they have known who was in, in or out? How would they have made reference to the church unless they were very clear on who was in and who was out? Now you'll say you're going too far. Maybe, maybe that step's too far. I, I, I don't know. This, this is really specific, and this language is all throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Romans chapter 16 says it this way. I, he's speaking of, in his closing words of how the church ought to look and function. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria. So again, wait. So that, that's not the church at Jerusalem, right? That's not the same. That's not the church at Ephesus. That's not the church at Antioch. This evidently is another clearly delineated church. Now this is easier for us to pick out in the early days of the church, right? Because there were not that many Christians and not that many churches. Now for us, the challenge, I believe, going forward in our own city won't be delineating necessarily like, like who's, who's, who, who would call themselves a Christian and who wouldn't, but it's more of like, who would call themselves a Christian and actually is? Because we have now in, in our own culture since at least the third century where Christianity became the, the official religion of, of the empire of Rome, we have this cultural following of Jesus, right? A cultural Christianity. I believe it's going away, but for whatever we can see, we know that something's going on here. So you're making, up, you're making up a new rule for us. I don't know. Let me, let me give you another example. These are throughout the New Testament. Let me show you the places where it's most clear. Paul is telling Timothy how he ought to be uh, leading his church, and this is something we, we believe in pretty seriously. He says, now let a widow be enrolled. Enrolled? Like put on a list? Like put in a spreadsheet? What do you mean? Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. So evidently there was a ministry of each church to the orphans and to the widows. This is a big deal, for, especially for this particular time in history. And they wanted to be careful of how they loved and served these widows. And so evidently, however your translation might say it, there was a list. How do we know who is in and who is out? Evidently, the first church knew who they were, they kept count, they counted heads, and they took careful note as to who was under their care and who was not. In fact, I would say you can't be obedient to Scripture without creating some sort of semblance of a, a clear and strategic and structural understanding who the church is and who it's not. It even goes to the sense of leadership. So Hebrews chapter 10, and, and let us now consider how to stir up one another. Catch that word, one another? It's all over the New Testament. What one another? One another like, like just anybody you meet? 
We think apparently it's about the church. This is, how we, this is why we do that. And how can we stir up one another to love and good works? Remember that you can kind of hear this, right? Like if you say something behind someone's back, rule number one, are, are we throwing them a party? Or rule number two, are we stirring them up for love and good works, right? This is it. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of son, of some, but encouraging one another, again, one another, and all the more as you see the day, that is capital day, drawing near the day when Jesus comes back. So who's he talking about gathering together? Who's he talking about? And there must be some clear delineation of the one another. Otherwise, they don't know. And we assume, apparently, that this church actually knew. So this is an important place where our culture stands up. And maybe some of you, I hear this all the time. Um, Well, I don't need to be a part of a church to be a Christian. Maybe. Depends what you mean. But then someone will say, well, I don't need to go to worship to be a Christian. Maybe. Depends what you mean. It's like this. See, I don't have to go home to be married. I don't. I can move in with one of you guys, and I can still be married. But that certainly begs a question, doesn't it? That certainly begs a question about my my own situation, where I choose to spend my time and energy. No, you don't have to go home to be married. Maybe I could be wrong. You probably need to go home if you want to stay married. And so there's this sense in which our relationship becomes evident, our relationship with Jesus becomes evident in the way that we treat one another. So you're right if a person says, well, I don't need to go to a worship service to be a Christian. Okay, you're right, but you do if you want to be obedient. And if you don't want to be obedient to the Bible, to God's revealed word, then now I want to go back to what you said. Are you sure you're a Christian? Are you sure you're a sheep that knows the shepherd's voice? Because it sure sounds like you think you're God. It sure sounds like you think you know better than Jesus. And if that's the case, then friend, you don't know Jesus. So do you have to be here and attend here to be a Christian? No, but evidently you do have to do such a thing if you want to be obedient. You want to be disobedient? Great. Now, you're, now we're back into Matthew chapter 18 and we're going to treat you like a tax collector and Gentile and believe that you haven't heard the gospel, that Jesus loves you and has reconciled you to his people. But then there's a picture not just of this kind of inclusion, but there's a structural component. Later on, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And now we get this picture of structure in the life of the church. Who's he talking about? One of the questions that you can You can kind of push into biblical Christianity if you want to. If you meet someone, just ask them, who's your pastor? Who's your pastor? Who's going to give an account for your soul? That's a key question. It's a big deal. Evidently, somewhere down the line, I'm going to give an account for how I have cared for, led, and watched over your soul. Now, that implies something about our relationships that's pretty substantive, right? I don't want to be just buddies with you. I don't want your approval or just your friendship. I want the eternal fate of your soul to be in the trustworthy hands of Jesus alone. And that's my task to you. And apparently, I'm going to be held accountable for that. So apparently, there's going to be this list of people, and God's going to say, 
These are the people entrusted to your care. And I want to ask you, is that you? If not, then who? If not, then who? And my hope is that you can look, at, there's a person, there's, a, per, there's, a, there's a, a biblically qualified elder pastor bishop that loves you enough to speak the gospel truth into your life. Not for the sake of your emotions, which are so fleeting, but for the sake of your soul. Your eternity is in the balance. And woe to me if I take that lightly. Woe to me if I settle for talking to you about the Cowboys or the Packers or the Vikings rather than the eternal nature of your soul. And forgive me for my failure in this, but the question still remains, who do you submit to? Or who are you working towards submitting to? I mean, there's, this, there's a couple of uh, like fraudulent people out there, right? There's a couple of people that get on television and say, hey, I'm a pastor, I'm a bishop, you know, help fund my jet, right? And that rule number one, if I start thinking we should buy a jet, this is where you should go, are you sure? Are you sure that was the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, I, don't, I doubt we'll need a jet for the ministry of, in, in our church in Sioux Falls, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you'll be there to correct me when I am, okay? So, so here's the important thing, like, do you submit to them? Is that your pastor? When things hit the fan, pity the man who falls and has no one to pick him up, Ecclesiastes tell us. Is that person going to show up at your doorstep? Is that person going to love you and care for you? Is that person going to visit you in the hospital? Is that person going to speak blessings at your funeral? Does that person have care over your soul? If not, then you might, just maybe, if you think that person does, you might be a little bit misled about the nature and character of the church. And we want to be clear about this. So let me land on this. As you kind of see, like, it seems to necessitate some clear understanding of who's in and who's out. If we're going to be the church that Jesus calls us to be, an authoritative group that speak the gospel truth to one another, it means that we're going to have to have some sort of delineation. My hope is, at the end of this, um, my hope is that we're going to gather together, we're going to begin to think about what this looks like, and we're going to begin a process that will be ongoing throughout the life of our church of renewing a covenant with one another. So I'm going to go back to this, this thing as it functions, and it will land on, on maybe some principles that I think are out here for us. Remember, the church is a people, not a place. Now the things that are working against us in here is a strong tendency toward two things a strong aversion to commitment, and a strong, strong tendency toward consumerism. And most of the language that people use with respect to the church is the language of tourism, that is like, I'm kind of here, but not really, I'm on my way out, and the language of consumerism, that is the buying and selling of goods and services. And most of the language, if you listen closely, that people use to describe the church is the language of tourism, and consumerism. And I want to push into those very, very succinctly here and show you that those will rob us of the gospel being visible in the life of the local church. If you miss this, you will miss out. Because a church is a people, not a place. And this is good for us because if we begin to realize and understand and trust that the church is a people and not a place, if a church is the people, then God is in and among his people distinct from his presence in the world. God is where his people are. Now, if church is a place, right? It's a time or a location that you, and think about, we, we even use this phrase, I told you that it needs to be like a swear jar. If you say the phrase, go to church, 
You owe somebody a dollar because you just spoke something unbiblical. You can't go to the church. The church is a people. It's not a place. It's never in the Bible referred to as a place. So even we have to kind of undermine our thinking about this, right? So if you're a member in a church, it's not a place or a location. It's a membership, a submission to a group of people. Now, we have a, a great leg up on this because we don't own a building. We rent this school to hang out with, right? There's a sense in which some of you are like, duh, clearly, this is a school. This is not a church. And that works to our favor. One day, maybe we'll own a building. Buildings aren't bad. A church owning a place, that's not bad. A church having a time to gather, that's not bad. But that doesn't completely encompass the identity of the church. But if the church is a place, then you'll notice some things start to happen. Then you'll have to spend all the time and energy you can to making that time and making that place as awesome as possible, even to the neglect of the investment in people. You seen this? If church is a place, then what we need right now is a really good show. If church is a place, what you really need is someone a lot funnier and wittier than me. Right? Someone much more entertaining. Someone much more winsome. Because if it's a place, we want to pour all of our energy into making that experience at that place as powerful as possible. Because if God dwells in that place, then, well, we better start treating this accordingly. If the church is a place, then we invest as much time and as much energy as, in, as possible into the events at that place. Have you seen this? And this means that you can get away with just about anything that you can imagine. This is a beautiful thing that that is not the case. Instead, what we see, that if the church is a people and not a place, then ultimately we build people, not places. Ultimately, our goal is to make disciples. Our deepest and most substantive investment is into the lives of people. This is hard. It's easier to build furniture because at the end of the week, you can look back and see your progress. When you build people and you pour out your life into people, sometimes it makes big chunks of your time, massive seasons of your life feel like a failure. But we are going to invest like Jesus told us to be a people and we're going to build people, not places. This means that if we're building people, this is what will happen. We're going to get in your grill. We're going to ask you about things that might make you uncomfortable. Because in the end, we want Christ to be glorified. We want Christ to be the attention, the center of attention. You see, if the church is a people, then ultimately we grow by being with that people, not being at that place. This is important, right? This is extremely important for us. For some of us, we have work schedules that make it impossible for us to be like regularly attending events. Well, thank God that church is not the events, right? Thank God that if like your boss gives you the night shift on, on Saturday night, that like your soul is not lost, but instead like you still belong to this people and you have to work around it. Now, I I'm telling you this from first personal experience. You're going to have to be creative. You're going to have to go above and beyond. If you work in some sort of industry that makes it difficult to regularly attend the events in the life of the church, you're going to have to go above and beyond. And I'm not speaking a word of condemnation here. I'm speaking from experience. I work every weekend. I work holidays, right? So we had better think more seriously about the life of the church. It better be more than just a show we put on. It better be something much more substantive. It better be the people and the presence of God made visible in our lives. Such that, like, if you get the flu next Saturday, that's okay. We love you and care for you. Don't bring the flu here. 
All right, obedience to Hebrews wouldn't be to come bring the flu. Keep it to yourself. We still love you, and we want to care for you. We'll make you some chicken soup. But thank God your soul isn't in the balance when you miss the place. Instead, what happens is we're invested in those people. This is important because I don't know if you've ever seen this. My personal experience is I've watched this play out in different ways. I've been a part of a church, for example, where I knew a person who was, a, a person who was highly esteemed, and when he spoke, people listened. But the more I got to know him, the more I realized there was a deep, deep, deep hidden sinfulness in his own life that played out in the brokenness in his family, and it played out in the dishonesty in his workplace. But in the life of the church, because it was just a place and a gathering, then as long as he was just serving in that place, as long as he was putting his time and effort toward that place and making that place as good as possible, then there's a sense in which he got a pass. But when the church is a people and not a place, then what's really actually most important is not necessarily what you look like and act like when you're in this place where we're gathered. It's actually what you look and act like outside. And this frees us from some things, right? Because if it's a place and experience, and there's a sense in which, like, there's this demeaning talk about and, and a condescending approach to what you've been doing the rest of the week, right? Like, you've been working, but that's really not what's important. What's important is now, here, in this place, what we see and what we say and what we think and what we do in this place. That's what's most important. When, in fact, the Bible seems to set us off in mission and say what's really important is what you do and say and think and how you act all the rest of the week. This is just one installment into the Christ-likeness that you're meant to be as a people set aside for God's purposes. Lastly, I think we see this. It's to our advantage, ultimately, to point one another towards the good news of Jesus alone, and not towards a place, and not towards a gathering, not towards some sort of occasion. It's to our advantage, because in the end, the only time, and the only place, and the only occasion, and the only occurrence that has any eternal value is the cross of Jesus Christ. The only time and occurrence that will change your soul will not be some time once a week in some place in our city. The time that has eternal value is the time that Jesus hung on the cross, looked at you and to me and says, it's finished, and then walked out of the grave victoriously so that now we can say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the time, that's the occasion, that's the occurrence, that's the experience that we point toward. That's what we talk about, that's what we sing about. We point to this good news, and it's to your advantage that I'm not trying to manipulate you in this moment to commit to something that is unbiblical or unholy, to stir up your emotions, but instead to point you back to the truth. But here's what I know about the church this will be countercultural. First, because of the language of consumerism. We're, we're driven by consumerism, by what we buy and by what we sell. And the temptation then will be to treat the local church like you treat Taco Bell. Like, ah, I don't like this. Nah, I'll move on. And you'll talk about the local church like you talk about maybe arguing between Taco Bell and Taco John's. Well, I like this. Well, I like that. Friend, that's a place. That's not a people. We don't talk about the church as though it's separate from ourselves. We belong to it. We are it. Its membership is what gives it its identity. We are a part of it. We commit to it. We submit to it. 
So we are very wary of the ways in which our consumer culture tends to dictate for us what the church is. This is important for us. Because in the end, we are not consumers of this community. We are creators of this community. We've been filled with God's grace such that now it's flowing out of us. The Spirit now flows out of us like a fountain that is now planted within us. And streams of living water flow out of us. So i got to ask you, do you suck the life out of people? Do you suck the living water out of people? Do you demand for them to perform? Or do you find yourself to be so full of the Spirit that it flows out of you and gives life to the people around you? Because that's who God's called us to be. And our consumer mindset will rob us of this truth. So if you think that the church is just a place you check in or a thing you buy and sell, then please look more deeply. You've missed the gospel. It's a people set aside for God's purpose. And the second thing that is an obstacle for us is the language of, I'll just call it uh, the language simply of tourism. We live in a low-commitment society, a very low commitment. And it's interesting because the highest commitments are actually related to consumerism. Like you're afraid to sign up for a two-year agreement with a cell phone company. You feel that sense in you, like, ooh, I don't know if I want to sign, I don't know if I want to sign away my life to this. But you notice this is interesting about how this works together. The most committed relationships that we have are actually consumer relationships. We'll go into debt for 30 years to buy a house. And we think that's actually in our society a good investment. We think that's a good commitment to make. But you start telling people that they're going to commit to the life of the church, to people. Whoa, I don't know about that. And so right now, here's what I know. Because the gospel isn't changing you. Here's what I know about some of you in this room. You are looking for an excuse to bail right now. As you look at your relationship, as you look at your job, as you look at all the situations around you, you are looking for an excuse to bail. Maybe you found it. Maybe you've already found that excuse, but you're just too cowardly to kind of live out Matthew chapter 18, and you're just waiting to do something in our culture that we do a lot. Is that we live in an AWOL culture. Have you noticed this? They just the high, high, and then disappear off the face of the planet. Ever seen this? Christians don't do this. We don't do this. We believe that Jesus bound himself to a people knowing that they had lots of good reasons not to. And so then we commit ourselves to a people, even knowing that we have a lot of good reasons not to. But in so doing, we express and demonstrate the gospel. This is important for us. The AWOL culture, the consumer culture, the low commitment culture, this will rob us of the joy that comes from seeing that God has put people in our place for a purpose. And here's the last thing I'll land on. When I, um, in my lifetime, I've just, I've just been blessed. I, I just know a lot of military people. Um, come on, best friends in high school and then even through college, just our military. And I've learned a lot from them because I'm not. Um, I'm pure civilian. And uh, my favorite is a friend of mine who was a Marine. He, 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 did, what, he, he did what was called SEER training. Uh, I have to get this right because everything in the military is an acronym and actually has meaning, and I want to get that right. Uh, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. Seer, seer training. It's counterintelligence so that if you're kidnapped by the enemy, you want to be able to endure torture and not break. And he taught me two different things that I, I, I'll never forget, and it's taught me the most about the life of the church, and I want to pass it on to you. He said there's lots of different tactics to begin to like, wear down a person. There's lots of different things that you can do, a form of psychological torture, but the most important thing that you can do is isolation and exhaustion. 
The most important thing, if you want to break a person's will, isolate them from people and then wear them out, deprive them of sleep. Side note here, this is why we want to love uh, uh, moms of newborns, uh, because newborns have a funny way of like using these tactics of torture, of isolating people. <laughs> just, tr- just side note, trust me, we want to love people better in this way. But here's what I see in our culture. If isolation and exhaustion are the most damaging things, if they're the things that will lead us to break, guess what our culture is so good at doing to you. Guess what they are poising to do? Did you catch that? Thanksgiving wasn't over. You weren't even done being grateful and you were already being told it what you needed to buy and consume. Did you get this? They're waiting out there to isolate you, to pull you away from people that love and care for you and speak gospel, eternal truth into your life. And they want to wear you out by signing you up for a whole bunch of other things that won't give you life, but it'll take it. Friend, this is real. If we don't exist as the people of God set aside for the purpose of God, then the purposes of the world will prevail. And they will isolate you, exhaust you, and apart from Christ and his people, destroy you. Let's pray together that that would not be the case. God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that you have set aside a people for yourself, not a perfect people, uh, but a people to love and care for us. God, right now I know that there's so many in this room that even in this moment I say this, they feel isolated. They maybe even feel isolated from the people in this very room. Would you begin to open our eyes to the tools that you've given us that, to reconcile, to restore one another? Uh, would you begin to demonstrate for us your love and care for us in the life of the church? If there's some of us in this room, maybe we just need to repent of unbelief. We don't, really believe that, we don't really believe that the truths of the gospel are eternal in nature. And we, we think that they have an expiration date. Would you begin to convict us of this and remind us that this truth you declare to us in Jesus Christ never goes away? But for the rest of us, would you begin to plant in us an idea? Would you begin to plant in us a picture of what it would look like for us as Connection Church to exist together for the glory of Christ? For us to live in this city and to love one another, to care for one another, to trust one another, and to trust that ultimately your spirit is guiding us. God, woe to us if we point towards anything other than you and your lordship, but now restore us and create in us a beautiful and magnificent, compelling culture such that the isolation and exhaustion that the world pushes on us begins to fade in the rest and peace we come to know in Jesus Christ. May this be the defining feature of this thing you call the church in your name. Amen.